This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. If you're listening to this episode without first listening to episode 45 from yesterday, stop right now, go back and listen to episode 45 on the Central Park Five. It's only a 12-minute episode, but it's really the intro to what I'm about to say now, right? So going back to that episode. For the rest of us, today I'm going to unpack a dirty little secret, and it's really one of those things that we must fight to change because it'll never change on its own. And it's not only at the center of the Central Park Five case, it's at the center of our entire justice system. Did you know that America's prosecutors and district attorneys, as it stands right now, have absolute immunity from their misconduct, even for the most severe cases of misconduct? That's true. It was made law in 1976 by the Supreme Court in the case of Embler versus Pachman, and it's abused every day, and it's weaponized every single day, and today I'm going to unpack and explain it for you. Let's dig in. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The, the, the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. Hey, friends. For the next minute, I want to offer you a warning because I'm going to be discussing the brutal and violent attack at the center of the Central Park Five case. And I'm going to talk about it for about the next 60 seconds. So if needed, skip forward about 60 seconds right now. All right. On the spring evening of April 19th of 1989, a 28-year-old investment banker named Tricia Maley was jogging through the west side of Central Park in Manhattan. And it's a beautiful, wonderful park, and millions of New Yorkers, including my own family, enjoy it every single year. And they always go there to jog and ride their bikes or walk. It's just a beautiful place. While she was out jogging, Trisha was brutally attacked by a serial rapist named Matias Reyes. It was about as violent as an attack could be without actually killing someone. She lost nearly 80% of her blood. Her skull and face were fractured in 21 places. And when she was found, she was naked, gagged, and tied up with injuries that were so severe I won't even repeat them. She was already in a coma, and she would stay that way for 12 days. And when she finally arrived at the hospital, she was given her last rites and was fully expected to die. And when she did wake up, for months, she was unable to talk, read, or walk. And as a victim of an assault myself, one that took me years and multiple surgeries to recover from, my heart breaks for Trisha Melee and for all assault victims. And when this happened, New York, particularly the white power structure in New York, was determined to get justice. Now, Trisha Maley, and this is important legally, 
had absolutely no recollection of the attack, and she still doesn't to this very day. But in the park that spring evening were dozens and dozens of neighborhood boys from all over Harlem. And I have to say here that nothing about that is weird. If you go to Central Park seven days a week, there are hundreds of kids all over the park. My own kids go to the park. And so on that day, five random black boys, many who had never met each other before, didn't even know each other's names. Five black boys were rounded up by the NYPD and held against their will. Some of them have become my personal friends. They were Raymond Santana, who was 14, Kevin Richardson, who was 14, Antron McRae, who was 15, Yusef Salam, who was 15, and Corey Wise, who had just turned 16. And so right there it began. Without a single shred of evidence, nothing at all, officers from the NYPD and prosecutors from the Manhattan DA's office began framing these five young boys for the brutal assault of Trisha Maley. Now listen to me. Whoever touched or came near her would have been covered in her blood and DNA. And none of that was found on a single child. None of them. Not under their nails, not on their clothes, not on their shoes, nothing. And their DNA would have been all over the crime scene. And not a single one of them, not one of the boys, had any DNA or a footprint or a fingerprint or anything at the crime scene. And when the FBI came in to investigate, they actually did find DNA from just one man at the scene. And let me be clear, they didn't find other DNA that they couldn't match. All the DNA that they found there from any men or boys all belonged to one person. And the FBI then compared that DNA that they found up against Raymond and Kevin and Antron and Youssef and Corey. And the only DNA they found there didn't belong to any of them. They conclusively ruled all of them out without a shadow of a doubt. And that's where I need to pause and break down the Supreme Court case of Embler versus Pachman, because it may be the single most important case that impacts the criminal justice system. And virtually nobody outside of the legal community has even heard of it. Let me break it down. Break it down. On January 4th of 1961, two men robbed a small corner market in Los Angeles. And when they did so, they shot and killed the store owner, a man named Morris Hassan. Ten days later, at a different store nearly 30 miles away in Pomona, California, three different men attempted to rob a different store. Now, mind you, Los Angeles is the second biggest city in the nation. It's not weird for one group of people to rob a store 30 miles apart, 10 days apart. But something happened at that second robbery. The men didn't get away. They bailed out on the robbery attempt, and when they were speeding away in their car, they wrecked it and killed one of the men. The two other men who survived knowing they were in deep trouble, at first fled the scene, left the man there to die. But the next day, one of the men, Paul Embler, decided to turn himself in. Are you following me? So when Paul Embler turned himself in for the botched robbery, he knew full well that he was going to go to prison for it. But what he didn't know was that the LAPD and the L.A. prosecutor's office 
were about to frame him for the murder of Morris Hassan from the robbery two weeks earlier. It was horrible. Paul Embler had absolutely nothing to do with that robbery. And police knew it. Prosecutors knew it. They didn't have a single shred of evidence saying otherwise. In fact, they had dozens of pieces of evidence that conclusively determined that Paul Embler had nothing to do with that robbery or that murder. Paul Embler had an alibi, and he had witnesses of his alibi, people who saw him at the exact moment where the robbery took place on a completely different side of town. The police and prosecutors had a hat and coat that people said Paul Embler wore during the murder. But the hat and coat they found were three sizes too small for Paul Embler. And the witnesses who said that the man who fired the shots said the clothes and the hat were too big for the man who fired the shot. But for Paul Embler, they were three sizes too small. The murder weapon was found on the scene, and it had another person's fingerprint on it. But guess what happened? The prosecutors hid all of that evidence. Legally, we call that the suppression of evidence. They hid that evidence, knowing damn well that it would exonerate Paul Embler. And then they called a star witness, a man with the last name of Costello, who told lie after lie about seeing Paul Embler at the store where Morris Hassan was shot and killed. And prosecutors hid the fact that Costello was actually a part of a crime syndicate being run out of that grocery store. And they basically traded his testimony for going light on him. They allowed him to testify, Costello that is, that he was actually a refrigerator repairman, which he wasn't. That he had a college degree, which he didn't. That he didn't have a criminal record, which he did. All of those were lies. And he actually worked in the mob full time. But they allowed him knowingly to lie to the jury about all of that. And so the jury, without all of the evidence that would have freed Paul Embler, and with fake evidence that police and prosecutors concocted together, the jury sentenced Paul Embler to death for the murder of Morris Hassan, a man he had never seen before in a store he had never stepped foot into a single day in his life. And they sent Paul Embler off to die, which is one of the many reasons I oppose the death penalty. We can assume right now that there are hundreds of men and women who are completely innocent, that have not only been executed, but are on death row right now. But Paul Embler fought back. Day after day, month after month, year after year, he fought back until finally a lawyer in Michigan and a journalist in San Francisco took on his case. And they proved lie after lie. And they showed how police and prosecutors worked together to suppress evidence and manufacture evidence, all to convict an innocent man. Nearly 10 years after he was convicted, Paul Embler was finally exonerated, and he began, as he should have, his lawsuits against the prosecutors who knowingly framed him, knowingly suppressed evidence that would have absolutely set him free. He began to sue the prosecutors who knowingly called on false witnesses, and they did all of that 
just to convict an innocent man. And several courts absolutely, completely confirmed that all of that took place. It's in their written statements to this day. It was undeniable. That's why they set him free. But Paul's case, Embler versus Pachtman, ended up getting appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And that's the case, Embler versus Pachtman. And Richard Pachtman is the corrupt prosecutor in that case. And in 1976, the court, in an 8-0 decision, made a judgment that only a group of eight attorneys could ever make. And let's be clear here. Supreme Court justices are also lifelong attorneys. And in their decision, they determined that prosecutors, and this is what I need you to get, what I need us to all understand in this Central Park Five case. In 1976, in Embler versus Pachman, the Supreme Court determined that prosecutors have absolute immunity. That's a quote, absolute immunity. That's different from partial immunity or qualified immunity. They have absolute immunity from any civil suit or lawsuit for prosecutorial misconduct, even if they were knowingly wrong, even if they suppressed evidence on purpose, even if they manufactured fake evidence, prosecutors, according to Embler versus Pachman, have complete and total immunity for such behaviors. And the justices, in their tragic decision, openly admitted that their decision left defendants like Paul Embler and like millions to come that would not have in, they would not have any recourse whatsoever, but that prosecutors needed to have this freedom, according to the justices, freedom to do what they needed to do to secure a conviction. It's a horrible law. And I hold this decision, Embler versus Pachman, I hold it up as one of the worst, most devastating Supreme Court decisions ever issued on criminal justice, period. And it's at the center of how prosecutors were not only able to railroad Paul Embler, convict him of a crime and send him to death row, but they've literally used these protections to railroad not thousands, but millions of people in the years since because prosecutors believe they are untouchable. And this law has basically confirmed that they are virtually untouchable, which brings me back to the Central Park Five. Tomorrow, I'm going to tell us what I think we can do about this case, what we can do about the horrible police and prosecutors who were involved in the Central Park Five case, and what I think we can do about these legal limitations that we're up against now. It's the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, the breakdown, break it down now. Thank you all for making it all the way through this serious episode of The Breakdown. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, listen, we'll be right back here tomorrow. We'll be right back here every single weekday, five days a week, breaking down important news stories and issues, telling you stories and details and facts that you won't hear anywhere else. And we'd love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or CastBox or whatever the app is, just subscribe. 
and share this podcast with your friends and family because our next big goal is to get to 100,000 subscribers and we're not going to get there without you. Also, have you left a review yet? Because on Apple Podcasts, we now have nearly 8,000 five-star reviews. We're almost at 8,000, but we're aiming for 10,000. So we still want to hear from you. So please, when you get some time, leave your best review. Of course, thank you to the nearly 30,000 founding members of the North Star, whose generosity even makes this podcast possible. We love and appreciate each of you so very much. And if you love this podcast and you want to support our work, or you want to see the show notes and transcripts for each episode, we'd love it if you'd consider becoming a founding member of our community. You can do that right now at thenorthstar.com. There we not only have our podcast, we have hundreds of original articles and stories and commentaries from some of the leading scholars and thinkers and journalists in the world. Lastly, as always, a shout out to our associate producer, Lissandra, our editor-in-chief, Dr. Keisha Blaine, Richard, for his editing skills, and our podcasting director and senior producer of this and of every episode, Willis. Thank you for your hard work. Take care, everybody. <laughs>